Hello everyone, thank you for joining us on this new episode of Thinking Out Loud, this is your host Yaren, and today we'll be talking about commonalities across major events that created change in the world. We want to be looking at what made them successful and how you can incorporate them into your own campaigns, be it something super, super personal like getting a raise at your job or something radical and public leading a social movement. Even if your intention isn't to start a campaign of your own, learning the principles of giants like Gandhi and Maximilian Robespierre, their principles and the stuff that they use to change the surroundings and to lead their own social movements is going to help you see the world differently. It's going to give you a lens to, to perceive the reality around you very differently. And, and the goal of any human being should be to... to acquire as many lens as they can through education. That's why you are going to school. That's why you're going to college, especially the the students who are in the, in the social sciences, uh, because your goal is to acquire new lenses through education. And, and and this is going to provide you with a new lens to look at look at world events, major world events around you. Through. So, the, so the steps that I'm going to list might seem very basic to you because they are intuitive. They're very intuitive. And, and if if one goes and looks and reads at all the social movements across across history, uh, let me mention, let me backtrack a little bit, successful social movements across history, these steps jump out at you. So while I was doing my research on social movements, I have been for, for a couple months now, uh, I came across these 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 principles that, that I saw, these factors that I saw across uh, many social movements. Uh, and I just thought I would share my findings with you because I thought this was relevant enough in today's day and age that you should know about it as well. The steps are as follows. Step one, figure out that you have a problem. And by figuring out, I don't mean think about it and think on it once in a while, that you're suffering, but dig really, really deep into it really analyze the situation. Ask yourself, what is actually going on? Do you see the problem every day? Or do you see it once in a while? Does it affect you on a personal level? Or does it affect you on a social level? Does it only affect you? Or are there other people? Is there a big group of people that is that is affected by it? To what extent are you affected by it? How are you affected by it? Is your experience different than there's the other people who are affected by it because the root cause could be the same but the symptoms that somebody faces or somebody deals with can be different so you want to be able to find common ground this common ground is going to help you garner support so find common ground right you, you really want to know inside and out what you're trying to change because that that is going to help you develop the the plan for the revolution or, or the movement, or even even menial tasks like like getting the raise. And when I go when I go through the examples, you're gonna figure out uh, that this applies to any situation that you might be trying to change. So step two is gonna be prepare, make this change and this this movement or this effort your goal. Make your life all about this. Ushering in change is not a passive thing. 
it's an active thing and if you passively act on trying to bring change you will be a fool in the eyes of your opponent the only time you can be passive is when you devote your time to another's movement right when you're the follower of another movement leaders cannot be passive leaders need to devote all their resources and time to the cause to the effort and that's that's the reason why leaders uh, get all the glory at the end right nobody really thinks about the followers the, the followers are seen as a group but the leader is seen as the leader of the group the leader is remembered by name but the group is remembered by the leader's name because the leader risked the most so devote all your resources and all your times to the cause actually before you even start figure out whether you want to be a follower or the leader figure out if there's another movement going on if you're not fit fit to be a leader don't be a leader right stuff happens you don't want to you don't want to you don't want to do a half-baked job because that can be very dangerous so if you if you aren't capable enough or don't have the resources or the time to be the leader find somebody else who can be the leader or join another movement step three figure out who you need to address right so now you have the problem now you've devoted your time now you need to figure out who you're gonna who's the opponent who's causing the problem how you're gonna talk to them can you talk to them in person are you gonna try to use the media to talk to them or are you just gonna make a lot of noise and hope they they notice you right you need to you need to strategize on how to how to approach them don't approach them yet just just figure out just plan it out who it is and how you're gonna approach them and and you also need to try to try to dig deep into their motives right why are they doing this why are they they being the source of the injustice this this thorn in your side something that's that's hurting the people why are why are they being the cause of it are they aware that they're they're causing this problem or are they just uh stupid and not seeing the, the that the people are suffering and by stupid i mean this could be a situation like king louis and marie antoinette right before the french french revolution started they were oblivious that the people are suffering right you, you could be in leadership uh you could be under leadership like that so you need to figure out figure that stuff out uh, because you don't want to have a blurry target you want to know your target inside and out and you want to have a clear vision of how you're going to approach the target and who the target is step four announce to the people that this is something uh, bad and that they're suffering from it and that they need to join the cause right that's that's where the common ground in step one is going to come in handy if you make the common ground the goal of the of the movement then you're going to be able to it's going to be an easier time garnering support everyone is going to feel pain differently so the so the common ground helps sort of sort of like a venn diagram situation right everybody has their own circle but you are addressing where the circle intersects so even if everybody's uh symptoms are different uh, they all identify with the movement, and that's why they are they are gonna be a part of the situation. And if you aren't 
capable of expressing the complexity of the situation in, in a simple enough manner that even a child can understand, then you need to go out and recruit someone, right? Just like uh, if you weren't able to devote the time and effort and you went out and got the leader, if you aren't fit and qualified enough to 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 uh, express the pain and the suffering of the people to to the general public and even to the people themselves, right? Because sometimes uh, you can be suffering and you won't realize it until someone comes and tells you that you're suffering. Uh, we're gonna go over the example of this later, but but you need to be charismatic enough to be able to express the the complexity of the situation in a simple enough manner that even a child can understand it. And if you can't, go out and recruit someone. Let them be the quote-unquote distiller of the movement, right? When you distill something, uh, you take the take the essence uh, and uh, well, you separate it from the jargon, and uh, it's just the essence remaining. So you need to have a qualified distiller who can, who can uh, create a simple enough message out of the complexity to to make it easier for people to understand and for people to grasp and for people to identify with uh, because if it's if the message is given to the people with the complexity still attached to it it's gonna fall on deaf ears or worse yet people are very receptive to it first but then it gets distorted over time um, and what I mean by that is think of the telephone game we all played as kids a long sentence always without ex exception got distorted by the time it got to the 10th kid. But a single word will rarely be distorted, right? You can't possibly change the message of, the, of a single word. No matter how you interpret the word, the word is still going to be the same and you're going to pass it down. Think of the Black Lives Matter movement. It's a very powerful slogan. It embodies the entire movement with three words, Black Lives Matter. And anybody who has been uh, watching the news in America over the past decade knows where, uh, like even if they're unaware of the movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, they would know where this, uh, where, where this slogan stems from and the validity of the slogan. So, so keep that in mind. You wanna, you wanna, because the message is gonna be complex. So you need a good, good distiller who can, who can make it simple enough that a, it doesn't fall on deaf ears, and b, doesn't get distorted over time. Um, so you need a public figure who's charismatic enough to do this, like a Martin Luther or a Gandhi type. And if you aren't capable, or qualified, or educated enough to do it, then don't do it, please, uh, because your movement will fail. Having a good distiller of the complex on your side will do you wonders. Step five, make the demands to the oppositions, right? So now everything is laid down. You have uh, realized that there's a problem. You've prepared. You've pulled all your resources. You've put time and effort in it. You've, you've made the preparation. You've organized everything. Step three, you've, you know who you want to address, right? You have a good idea of who your enemy is you have a clear target in your mind and you're going to be able to to address them quickly and precisely and succinctly 
right? You know how you're gonna address them. So all this preparation went in, you have your support, like people are people are ready to join. People are ready. They they identify with a problem. They want it to change. They like you as a leader or or the person you have as the leader of the movement to like them. Uh, so now, step five is to make the demands to the oppositions. Tell them that you need to you need to change this, or there's going to be consequences. Make the demands, and and if the demands are ignored, punish them. Simple, right? If they ignore the demands, punish them. Because uh, if you don't, then then your movement is dead in the water. If there's no consequence to to them ignoring the uh, ignoring your demands then then you might as well not even try and the consequence can be something innocuous right if it's if it's on a personal level right if it's on a if the change you're trying to bring is in a relationship on a one-on-one -on -one level someone is being mean to you or something like that and you just realize that they treat you terribly and you're asking them to change the punishment of this uh them ignoring your plea could be you never speaking to them again. On a on a larger scale, on a on a social revolution, these consequences can be different. For example, the consequence of King Louis and uh, uh, his monarchy ignoring the requests of the revolutionaries was their beheading, right? So make sure that there is a consequence to them ignoring your demands. You need to have something there. And you also need to be very careful not to make it either too harsh uh, or too light. You need to find that sweet spot. Uh, so, yeah, make sure you find the right punishment. Make sure it's not too harsh. Like, if it's harsh, you're going to be the villain of the story. And if it's too weak, the punishment is going to be irrelevant and they're just going to keep ignoring you. Right, because not that, like there's no consequence to them ignoring you. Whereas if they agree to those demands, something changes and people don't like change. So you have to be able to find that sweet spot where if they ignore it, the punishment is severe enough that it outweighs the 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 benefits of of ignoring the demand. So yeah, you need to think about that. And if you have a if you have a punishment suitable for the situation, but you can't exact it for yourself, find a recruiter. Find a, sorry, not not a recruiter, an enforcer. Uh, a, a George Washington of sorts. He was the punisher of the American Revolution. And the founding fathers, such as John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, were the distillers. They declared the independence, and when the British and British ignored the independence. Washington was there to punish them by defending the independence. Basically, an enforcer is someone who scaffolds the beliefs and the ideas of the distiller and the public. When the distiller is making demands, someone needs to be part of the movement who ensures that there are consequences to the opposition if the demands aren't met. The Americans declared the independence, which was a demand. The British ignored, and they tried to quell the rebellion, and which was an ignoring the demand. Uh, then the enforcers, George Washington and the, uh, the American army, which was pulled together by the, the resources uh, of, the, of the founding father, enforced the declaration and fought back. 
we have seen places where distiller and enforcer were the same person, but more often than not, in larger, larger scale movements, they are two separate people or parties. So depending on the scale of your movement, right? If it's if it's only a negotiation, a salary negotiation with your boss, it's gonna the distiller and the enforcer is gonna be you. But if it's a social movement, you you will be better off uh, by having two separate entities playing these two separate roles. The last step, step six, is to follow through, right? Depending on what it is you're doing, things might take time. Things will absolutely take time if it's a social movement, but if it's something where only two or three parties are involved, like a salary negotiation, then it, it, it's going to be fairly quick and fairly follow through won't be necessary. If it's a social movement, however, you are going to go through many trials and tribulations, but stick to the cycle of repeating step four and five. Make the demands, and if ignored, make sure there are consequences to ignoring those demands. Keep doing this again and again until change comes. Don't think the ones who started the movement will be the ones who end it, right? Let me repeat that. Don't think the ones who started the movement will be the ones to end it. Yes, a lot of times change comes in a, in a single generation, but sometimes it can take centuries. Look at the Indian independence. It took almost two centuries of the Indian subcontinent for the Indian subcontinent to be to be free from the tyranny of the European nations. During the time, the country went through many distillers and enforcers. Right? The the set that started off the movement wasn't the one that ended the movement. Even though the last set of the distillers and enforcers got the glory, it was the culmination of the two centuries worth of effort and fighting that helped the distillers like Gandhi and enforcers like the freedom fighters included Bhagat Singh drive the opposition out, which in this case was the British Empire. Oh, and I need to also mention, over the two centuries, the 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 opponent changed as well, so they needed to switch their targets because because India came under uh, rule of different British, uh, not sorry, not British, but different European countries. So they had to switch their targets. Their follow through is one of the best I've seen in the history uh, of of revolutions. Right, their their targets kept changing. Uh, their distillers and enforcers kept dying off, but the the movement stayed alive because every time something would change, the 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 leaders of the movement would recruit someone else or stand somebody else up there who would be equally as uh, you can say uh, passionate about the movement. He he was uh, leading the movement with just as much zeal, which kept the passion alive in the people for two centuries. So don't think it's going to be it's going to be something you can pull off in one night because just look at that. It took two centuries and different different generations to be able to pull independence off. So now you might be wondering, well, I don't want to lead a situation, uh, sorry, a social revolution. Why the hell am I listening to this? Right? I don't really have the time or energy to change the world. Neither am I probably conscientious enough to change. So why is this important to me? The steps I just mentioned to you can be used in your day-to-day -day life as well. For example, let's look at a salary negotiation with this. So you've been working at a company for a while and you 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 aren't you you think you aren't getting paid enough. You have a hypothesis, right? You think you aren't getting paid enough. The people around you are being able to afford more stuff or their lifestyles are different, even though. 
uh, you guys are working the same job, or right, your friend works in a different company, but you guys have the same job, um, and he's able to afford uh, a 2018 car, whereas you are able to afford a 2012 car, right, because you're grossly underpaid. Uh, so that that's your hypothesis. So what you want to do is, for step one, uh, validate the hypothesis. So you figured out that you need a raise, uh, but the question isn't as simple as, well, I don't think I have enough money, so give me more, right? We can never have enough money. It's about what your respective occupation and level of experience is worth in the market. You will have to do some research, so go to websites like Glassdoor, uh, where you can compare, compare salaries. So go there or go on Google, find find whatever website you like or whatever you have been using. See what the people at your level and uh, in your respective field are making. And if you're ma if you are making less than the than the average, or you need to have you need to go chat with your chat with your uh, boss. And if you're making less than, then you need to change, right? You can't be making less and be doing the same work. This is a good foundation. This research is a good foundation. This validation of the hypothesis is a good foundation to build this movement on. So now that you've, you've validated your hypothesis, now you want to get serious about this and prepare. This isn't something you're gonna be able to do impulsively, right? You can't just waltz into your into your boss's cabin and be like, "Give me a raise." Everybody else is getting a raise, or everybody else is making more money than me. Uh, you need to plan it out. What happens when they or when? Well, most likely they will say no at first. So, uh, what happens when they do say no? Are you just gonna back down? What are some consequences that you? you yourself might face for asking for a raise what are some consequences that you can throw at them if and when they say no brush up on your interview skills and clean up your resume apply for new jobs so you have a backup because now you're serious about getting your worth and if your current employer doesn't pay up well then you're going to leave them because because they aren't they, they don't value as much as other companies will, right? If if uh, if you're good enough at your job, other companies are going to be dying to to recruit you. So so uh, apply and uh, and have those those uh, opportunities as as the ammo that you're going to use to to get the raise. So so step two is done. You've applied and you've gotten interviews and you've got offers. Now step three would be to figure out who you need to talk to in your company to get a raise. This would either be your manager or the CFO, depending on your position and the size of the company. Talking to the wrong person, and by wrong, I mean the person who has zero control, will absolutely destroy your chances of getting a raise. You need to talk to the decision maker, someone who can make the decision right then and there on the spot if you get a raise or not. And you also need to make sure that if the decision maker is someone other than your direct superior who actually knows your worth and importance in your in your organization someone who values you for your work then you need to make sure that they're present during the negotiation so they can they can translate so they can they can convey your importance 
to the to the decision maker, and this is gonna play heavily, and this is gonna affect heavily what, how, and what decision the decision maker makes. They need to let the decision maker know that if you exact your punishment for denying the request in the form of resignation and leaving the company, it will be detrimental to the company, right? Because that's that's the punishment you're going to give to them. If, if they deny your request of a raise of fair fair pay, then you're going to leave. And, 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 and your boss, who values you, needs to convey this to the decision maker because the company cannot afford to lose you. So that's going to help your chances of getting a raise. Step four would be to distill the information so you have it into a convincing enough argument and present it to the decision maker. So you make the demand. In this example, you are going to be the distiller and the enforcer yourself, right? You can't really, you can't really have someone else enforce the consequences. Uh, if, as mentioned before, you report to the manager but the CFO is the one who makes the decisions and deals with payroll, then the distiller can be the manager and you can just be the enforcer, right? That's the only case because the distiller needs to be able to talk to the, talk to the opponent uh, and convey the message. So talk to the boss, sit in the negotiation, ask for the raise, make the argument that you deserve a market rate, and if you got the better offer when you applied for the jobs in step two, mention that. Tell the company to match it. See what the answer is. And if it is anything other than a yes, punish them. Step five, enforce the consequences of ignoring the risk. Sorry, ignoring the request. Uh, in this case, quit. They knew if they didn't give you a raise, you would leave. But here we are. Your request has been ignored. Leave the job and go to the job you have lined up. You have the market rate you wanted and now you will be going to a company that values you. One thing you absolutely do not want to do is make empty, sorry, empty threats. Follow through on, on your words. If you made an empty threat and they call you on your bluff and you end up staying, you're losing more value. They're not going to pay you less per se, right? Uh, they can't like decrease your salary. Uh, as a result of a failed campaign of salary negotiation, but your respect and social standing in the company will absolutely suffer. That is why step two is important. Make sure you're all about this change. Make sure you're prepared to dish out the consequence of leaving the job if they don't pay you well. And if they do, then stay. And even if, even then, you have a choice of repeating step four and five, right? You can go back to the new company that offered you the job and ask for more, a rate which is perhaps higher than the market rate, or you can stay and and not get too greedy. It's all it's all up to you, right? Because you have the blueprint and you can use it whenever. These steps can be used in any negotiation situation, uh, but will only work if you do the homework, such as getting the distiller, if it is anyone other than you, your own manager. Applying to other jobs is gonna be important. Uh, and being ready and willing to leave the workplace if your demands aren't met is going to be very important. You need to be able to dish out the consequences. So now you know that uh, these steps can be applied to, to uh, you know, your situation as well. So let's look at how or where we see these principles uh, in full-blown revolutions and social movements, right? Because that's where I got these principles from uh, 
and uh, to to give you the validity of these principles, I need to prove that these were used in social revolutions, because right now uh, it could be something. Right. For all you know, it could be something I just conjured up in my mind, and I just lied that I saw these uh, in 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 social revolutions. So now let's look at how these principles apply to full-blown revolutions and social movements. Start off with looking at the American, French, and the Indian revolutions. The French Revolution is where the world leaders got the blueprint. Right. That's where the blueprint of the modern revolutions was developed. The, the ideas of enlightenment first took hold in France. John Locke did most of his work almost a century before before the French Revolution, right around 80 years before before the French Revolution. But that's where where we see the ideas really grip the people's minds and and the people really act on the, on the on the enlightenment ideas. So the French Revolution told everybody what to do and what not to do because it was one of the first major revolutions. And not only was it major, but it was very bloody, right? It showed us what happens when people who are prepared to punish the oppressors for ignoring demands and oppressors who are oblivious to the oppressed people's capabilities clash. The French, French Revolution is basically a textbook example of this. The principles were followed in a very, very clear manner, and even though it took a long time for the revolution to start, the preparation was there, right? The, the steps one and two took a long time, but after that, it it, 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 it was it was less than a decade uh, for the entire, uh, for step two, uh, sorry, for step three, four, and five, and six to, to take place. So it all started with John Locke and his ideas of enlightenment, freedom, and liberty. These ideas were revolutionary at the time when every single neighboring country was either a monarchy or a proxy for a monarchy. His ideas were so revolutionary that they needed to fester and ferment in the, in the minds of the French people for almost a century, right? As I mentioned, like 80 years uh, before they acted on the ideas. Not only was, was time needed for the ideology to take a hold of the people, uh, but terrible conditions needed to give them give them sort of a push and extra encouragement for for a nationwide revolt. Uh, what happened was that the mar monarchy uh, was living in opulence and people's voice wasn't being heard. The 97% public had less power than the 3% monarchy and church combined, right? The, the monarchy and church had more power than the 97% average Joe. So that you can already see how it would be a problem in today's enlightened world. Uh, back then it was somewhat normal, uh, but the enlightenment ideas really made it clear to people that this isn't how it should be. Uh, so keep in mind, uh, sorry, keep in mind, should be. So keep in mind that that these people whose minds had been freed by the ideas of John Locke and Enlightenment uh, were were only able to do it because John Locke told them that this was bad, right? Uh, so as I was mentioning, like you can you can be oppressed and not know, and this this is an example of that. 
the people, the monarchies have existed for a very, very long time, and it's a broken system, and people didn't realize that they had more power. Uh, someone needed to come along, someone like John Locke, to tell them that liberty is a right, that they need to, they need to take power in their own hands, right? So, getting back to the topic, the, the monarchy was living in absolute opulence, and the majority of people couldn't even afford bread something as menial as bread. The conditions were dire, the power structure was uneven, the leaders were clueless, and the ideologies of the people were in the perfect place for the powder cake to erupt. The distillers didn't have to do much work, because as, as, as I said before, John Locke had did mo most of the work in the 80 years, had, had fermented the idea enough in the people's minds that they were just ready to act on it. So step two and uh, step one and two, realization and preparation were completed by the time uh, the, the distillers and the enforcers started coming up. So then came step three, targeting the oppressor. King Louis and Marie Antoinette were seen as the oppressors, and they were the prime example of oblivious oppressors. The monarchy was seen as the oppressors, and that is what they needed to address. So the, at, at this point, step three was complete too, because now people were ready to overthrow the king, to overthrow this, this terrible system. So now the leaders came about, which was step four. The most famous of the leaders was the French Revolution, uh, of the French Revolution be the enforcers like Robespierre and Danton and distillers like Murat and Russell and let's not forget the most important of all the distillers John Locke himself uh, when the demands of the people weren't met aka freedom and basic human rights such as cheap bread right the right to not be hungry even even though you're working your butt off uh, and a government that cares for its people, that's what they wanted as well. A group of enforcers like the Jacobins stormed the palace of Louis and Marie and guillotined them, along with all, both alleged and actual counter-revolutionaries, during the Reign of Terror. Thus, step five, the punishment was completed, right? In step four, the, the oppressors ignored, and then the punishment was exacted in step five. So that ended, ended the ended the cycle there because there was no need for a repetition. Uh, the oppressors were were basically dead. Uh, Where are you going to target? Right, you have what you needed. Uh, what ended up happening afterwards was is a whole other uh, can of worms that I'm not going to open right now. Uh, you can look into it. Uh, very interesting stuff happened. Very bloody stuff happened. Very, very. Uh, if you analyze it, it's it's gonna open your eyes at, to a whole new world. So yeah, Louis and his people should have been smart enough to realize that the entire public was against them, and that their demands should be met, or the consequences will be dire. The French Revolution, though bloody, is the bedrock of many revolutions across the world because it was a lesson on how to lead the revolution for the people and for the revolutionaries, and it was a lesson on how to handle revolution for the people in power. The lessons taken from this revolution helped both sides tremendously, and now you have those lessons as well. The 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 principles were followed in the American Revolution to almost a, down to a T as well. The people realized that they're being taken advantage of. Uh, John Adams told the people, right? He was a distiller. He he told people taxation without representation is bad, and uh, 
this was a big one. Taxation without representation is bad. This was a big one to garner unity. So the people were all suffering, no doubt, but someone needed to come along and distill the complexity into a coherent, easy-to-understand message that everyone could get behind. And that's what John Adams did. So, okay, so now the people knew that they had the short end of the stick and that they deserved deserve freedom over the British. The next step would be to, preparate, uh, to prepare. Uh, and that's when the founding fathers united and pooled their resources together for the movement. And they designed the revolution and consequences and put together the cabal of brilliant thinkers who would uh, demand freedom and then put together resources that would help exact the punishment, which would be uh, war, uh, the, the independence war. And George Washington was put in charge of the uh, enforcing committee, which was the army. And he was the prime enforcer, basically. And when the British didn't listen, uh, they came to fight and to quell the uh, quell the rebellion. They they were basically uh, shooed off by. Well, it wasn't a showing; it was an actual war. But but we know that there were consequences to the British because of this. And then, therefore, we got the independence. Uh, and then we look at the Indian Revolution. The same thing happened. It took a while for this, but. The pattern of realization, preparation, organization, and execution is clear. It took almost two centuries, but step four and five, it took two centuries and step four and five were repeated over and over again. Actually, step three as well, because because they needed to figure out who the target was again and again. So step three, four, and five were repeated over and over again by many different parties until, until the movement ended, until the last attempt was the last straw that broke the camel's back, the camel in this case being the British Empire. Uh, so far we've seen, seen in all examples that people were already aware and ready to overthrow the tyranny of the oppressor, but that isn't the case in the majority of the oppressed people. That is why there's so much inequality in the world today. Sometimes the oppressed can't even realize that they're oppressed because they have been indoctrinated by the people around them so much that they think it's normal. Or even if they do realize that they're oppressed, they can't even do anything about it because the oppressor has such a tight grip on the oppressed that no matter how much uh, the oppressed people try, they can't get organized enough or put forth a strong enough joint effort to rebel. An example of not realizing that someone is oppressed would be, you know, people living in the monarchy. Just look at that. They they had the power, but they were still, still, uh, still putting up with terrible kings, right? Once in a while a good king would come, but most of the time we hear stories of bad kings. Another example of culture affecting your views on whether, whether you're oppressed or not would be women living in radical areas of the Islamic world. Being from Pakistan myself, I have seen this firsthand. Most women who belong to areas where radical Islamic or even orthodoxy uh, of the Islamic religion uh, of Islam uh, flourish uh, let, let me let me stop right here. There is a slight difference uh, between radicals, because radicals carry out the extreme jihad of killing those who are who they don't seem Muslim or deem Muslim, which can include other modern Muslims as well. Just look at ISIS, because ISIS didn't see other Muslims as as Muslims, so they were killing them too. Uh, and the Orthodox are just strict strict adherence to the text and support the radicals, but don't carry this out themselves. Uh, so we needed to make that distinction. Coming back, 
I have seen women being forced to wear the burqa, covering head from head to toe, so no one can lay eyes eyes on them. Uh, doesn't matter how hot it gets. Uh, they have to wear it when they go out. And uh, especially in the Taliban-occupied parts of Pakistan, the burqa isn't the only thing though that that is forced on them. They can't leave their own houses and go to a public place without a male blood relative accompanying them. This is normal in the culture, and when 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 the women who are uh, in our eyes oppressed, uh, and when those women are questioned about their treatment, they seem to be okay with it because in their eyes they aren't they aren't uh, they aren't oppressed, right? Because that's all they know. They don't they don't know anything else. They don't. So in their eyes, this this is the normal norm of life, and and they're happy with it. Uh, so so the second the second of uh, people realizing that they're oppressed but not being allowed to do anything about it would be would be the classical American slavery. When someone is made to work from day to night, whipped and treated worse than cattle, they absolutely know that they are oppressed but that wasn't the problem like the right the slaves knew that they were oppressed and the problem wasn't that they didn't know the problem was that they weren't allowed to gather in large enough numbers that could have possibly made a difference right Kanye got in trouble for saying that slavery was a choice it really wasn't though right they 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 knew that they were they were they were oppressed but there was nothing they could do about it. The whites knew of this of the time, and they 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 took extra care not to let literacy or organization come into the slave community. They made sure that the slaves weren't allowed to allowed to gather in large enough groups that that could you know, pr- prove to be troublesome for the for the for the oppressors. So coming back to the steps, now you know the consequences don't always have to. Well, first. You know that uh, the steps are valid, right? I've just given you guys some examples. You can do some research on your own, and you're gonna come to the same findings. And I actually encourage research. Give me some other examples that I that could have been even better examples of the steps, better representations, and better implementations of the te- of the steps uh, that I missed out on. Let me know. But yeah, so one thing I want to mention is that the consequences don't always have to be killing. Right? If the enforcers' abilities are taken seriously enough, the fear of the consequences is enough to get the job done. The fear itself. But to instill the fear in the heart of the opposition, you need to be ready to exact the punishment for ignoring your demands. Look at Mandela. He had established a reputation for being able to exact the punishment for ignoring his demands. His bomb blasts are famous across the world. These blasts led to time in prison, uh, which in turn led to a paradigm shift in his psyche. But these blasts helped solidify his reputation in the world's eyes that he will go to any lengths to get what he wants for his people. Which is why the government of South Africa listened and bent to his will. They were afraid of the monster that lurked within him. Right? He was now pro-peace, but that doesn't mean the monster went away. They knew that the risk of ignoring the demands of him and his people would possibly mean bringing the monster back out with his violent activist mentality. And it could be even worse than what 
they had seen before. Same was the case with, with the civil rights movement in the United States. Yes, Martin Luther King was was a great distiller and he was pro-peace and all of that. But without his movement being scaffolded by the likes of Malcolm X and the Black Empowerment Movement, uh, it wouldn't have been as effective, right? Because, because and even though Malcolm X and Martin Luther weren't directly working together, they were working towards the same goal, which was Black Empowerment. Uh, and uh, they took different routes, but people were scared. Uh, they were scared of they were scared of Malcolm X and what he could possibly do. They were scared um, of uh, if if Martin Luther became like Martin, Malcolm X, they would it would be even worse for them. So the fear was what helped, right? It wasn't hundred percent, but it was a factor in helping. The fear I just spoke about doesn't even have to be of literal death, right? Thankfully, in today's day and age, we can have a revolution by merely social. Let me let me backtrack. We can have revolutions by mere social assassinations. There we go. Social, yeah, that's not that hard. Uh, yeah, we can have social assassinations of the oppressors. Blood doesn't need to be shed anymore. The effective punishment is at your fingertips. Twitter. As a result of modern technology, social media has allowed for people to unite and collectively blacklist and boycott other people. This is the best enforcement method we have now because because no one wants to be socially boycotted, and and this has proved to be very successful so far. This consequences has been uh, these consequences have been utilized in in movements such as the BLM, the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, very effectively and uh, and as well as the LGBTQ movement. These movements are not bloody at all, but just as effective. Why? Because of the cancel culture and the weight it carries. Because when someone, when enough people have the same mindset and they blacklist the same person across a community or cancel someone, the, 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 the lives are ruined, right? This policing policy has a snowball effect. Uh, and we're, we're going to go into it in a different episode the pros and cons of this uh but for this just know that this is something at your fingertips you can utilize this uh the larger group is doing the canceling uh and 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 the the, the oppressor is getting canceled and their lives are getting ruined so so the fear is helping helping your cause and the larger the group the better the canceling or the better the result of the canceling so you want to have a lot of people on your side. I know this this podcast has been going on for a while now, so let me let me just wrap things up. So to summarize, the essential steps you need to have uh, memorized, basically, uh, to change something are basically right: realize, organize, prepare, target, distill, demand, enforce, repeat. Uh, so use the steps and in your personal life or in society to help bring about change. Again, realize, organize and prepare, target, distill, demand, enforce, repeat. Remember, don't go overboard and don't make the punishment too light. Find the right sweet spot and press. Continue the cycle until you get what you deserve. And thank you for bearing with me this long, long episode. But 
hope hope it was informational to you and hope hope you learned something and hope your time was worth it uh and thank you for listening yeah uh, let me know if you have any questions or concerns or comments uh you can follow me on twitter it's uh my name yar thasher and uh, you can tweet at me dm me or you can message me directly on anchor i'll see you again with another episode of thinking out loud and uh have a great rest of your day